0: There are many scholars at NDU and throughout the world, and even at CIC, who believe that information primarily supports or amplifies other strategy, that information is a sideshow of a sideshow, that it's a force multiplier for minor powers and non-state actors. It allows them to box above their weight. It's helpful at the operational and tactical levels, but some scholars, like Friedman, suggest that Regional and world powers should use information or strategies of guile, for example, sparingly. Now, while intelligence gathering and strategic influence may be inexpensive and have little risk for minor powers, great powers may risk their very reputation and position in the world if they gain a reputation of dishonesty or conducting unwanted influence. Friedman suggests, and I quote, once warfare moved to mass armies with complex organizations, the emphasis would be on force. Now there's another side to this coin. There are others that suggest that information strategy in all its forms, overt and covert, open and clandestine, that information strategy is essential even to regional and global powers, and perhaps it is a lost art in contemporary times. That if we break down power, we have both the the physical and the psychological realms. That in studying the physical aspect, we must never lose sight of the psychological. That's Liddell Hart. And Friedman suggesting the realm of strategy is one of psychological as well as physical even as he plays down the psychological aspects later on in his book. According to Marine Corps general publications, power is sometimes material, just as often as psychological in nature. and War is a violent struggle between two hostile, independent, and irreconcilable wills. An emphasis on will. And we have to remember that bullets, of course, they don't shoot themselves. It is the mind of the person that allows, that has to pull the trigger, a human being has to pull the trigger, a human being that has a will to fight, a will to kill, a will to die, and perhaps a nation that has a will to mobilize year after year, sometimes decades after decades. Now I want to turn to information warfare myths and misconceptions. possible misconceptions. Misconceptions in the media, in pop culture, in pop literature. Now I'm going to try to challenge some prevailing perspectives, offer an antithesis, play the devil's advocate for our debate and dialogue. Certainly we at CIC do not have an agenda and frankly it'd be quite boring, a boring semester if you were to agree with me. Oftentimes, when we think of information warfare, we think of tactical information operations, psychological operations, we think of pamphlets and radio shows. We think of tweets, Facebook posts, fake news, misinformation, disinformation, which is often short-lived, top-down, tactical in nature with short-term effects. Information warfare, though, can be far more strategic, far more subversive, far more subtle, and may have, or it's possible, it may have long-term effects. It often exploits ideas and trends that already exist rather than creating new ones. We are in information warfare not in the business necessarily of creating new ideas, but exploiting those trends that exist. Information warfare often hinges on people being unaware that they're being influenced. It often hides in plain sight, wrapped in ideals, morals, and freedom, wrapped in ideals that are near and dear to our heart. Unfortunately, according to some media outlets, popular literature, and even seeping its way into some older doctrine, there are a number of possible misconceptions, you be the judge. In popular literature, in old doctrine, even in professional journals, some authors assume hypotheses that were put forth by people without experience, without evidence, without critical study. Some may offer vague and unobservable claims, such as the world of information should and can be broken down simply into content, connectivity, and cognition when the vast amount of influence, persuasion, and information campaigns do not see messages from a government go through cyber or offline channels to populations. Instead, it's about amplifying or leveraging trends and narratives that exist very often. Some readings use anecdotes, personal experiences, and testimonials, and cherry pick case studies that represent only tactical military psychological operations with a possible misassumption that all tactical methodologies and techniques can be leveled up to the strategic regional and global levels. Some take a simple analogy and run with it without evidence or experience. Such as information is like a virus because sometimes it can spread, which is a fine I think introductory analogy, but taking literal lessons learned from epidemics to information and applying them to information has its limitations. And some authors maintain unchanging, exaggerated, and overly certain claims about how information works when, in fact, neuroscience, also known as neurobiology, their findings on the architecture of the brain, the phenomenon of the subconscious and limbic systems, are being updated continuously especially in the last two decades since new MRI technology allowed us to understand the subconscious and limbic systems more. So let's now look to five specific possible misconceptions. Getting a little more specific here. One is the possible mistake of only relegating information warfare to traditional tactical lines of effort like IO or PSYOPs. I might suggest that information warfare, information strategies should not be relegated only to a few lines of effort, or only relegated to a mission appendix. Now to be sure, our information operations, our MISO, our public affairs, our public diplomacy officers, play critical direct and advisory roles in strategy making, strategy planning, and strategy execution. However, I would suggest that all strategic leaders play a role with regards to information strategy, should include information strategy as a central element to mission plans when appropriate. That perhaps strategy can be considered a political art. It's about getting more than what the starting balance of hard power might suggest. Getting more out of the will and ability to to quickly mobilize lethal force. Perhaps strategy is the art of creating power. That we should think of the physical and the psychological, words and deeds when we're considering our central effort of some missions when appropriate. Another possible misunderstanding is to conflate information warfare only with messaging. According to communications scholar William E. Porter, there has not been one iota of evidence since after World War II that there is anything like an irresistible silver bullet. The idea of a silver bullet message that will affect people is groundless, According to Porter, people are not like targets in a shooting gallery. Messages alone in the ether are unlikely to have any effect. Angela Codvila suggests, and I quote, that psychological operations is often misunderstood as the preposterous proposition that words can substitute deeds. Information campaigns cannot exist in the ether, they cannot be divorced from identity, power, strategy and perception. Three, possible misperception or misconception that information warfare is new or niche. Arguably, information warfare was one of the foundations of civilization. Leaders convincing people to follow them and buying together beyond the clans. Leaders convincing people to follow them and not to follow others. It was never enough to be the strongest person in a clan. It was he or she who developed the best foundational narratives, those imagined communities, those national myths. Information warfare certainly predates armies and states and remains, arguably, a central imperative of power. It defines the vast majority of human conflict, all shades of political warfare. Even in conventional warfare, indirect strategies, surprise, and deceptions can be key. And even in direct strategies, lies the psychological realm, will to fight, fear, deterrence. So, so what? Who cares that has been going on for about 70,000 years, information warfare? Well, I would suggest that we can learn a thing or two through history, and I'm not a historian. No information campaign, I might suggest, despite information revolutions that accelerate at neck-breaking speeds. Is completely original, or it's rare that one is completely original. We have millennia of lessons learned, some of which may be helpful, even if history is not repeat, even if history doesn't even rhyme. Four, another possible oversight of information warfare is relegating information warfare only to tactics, specifically only to these notions of disinformation and fake news. I might argue that disinformation and fake news is at the tactical and technical level. They are tactical materializations of what we might consider propaganda. Propaganda is an operational materialization of what we might consider strategic influence, and strategic influence is just one of many information warfare domains, which include intelligence, intelligence collection, dissemination, analysis, synthesis, persuasion campaigns, information campaigns. I might suggest or challenge us not to allow media headlines to determine our focus. We should not look only to stemming adversary disinformation. We shouldn't ask for so little. We should instead look to enduring strategic collapse Of destabilizing influence campaigns at their root in order to advance our national interest. Fifth and final possible myth is the idea of ending an era of disinformation. Disinformation comprises lies or partial lies for a political, social, corporate, or personal goal to deceive, manipulate, influence, confuse, distract. Disinformation began as a tactical tool of strategic influence as soon as homo sapiens organized beyond the Klan. We'll talk more about this in the next lesson. Even in healthy democratic republics, political campaigns, local and national, exaggerate, oversimplify, and sometimes enable spurious and partially true rumors. Often opponents will accuse the other side of disinformation. And ending disinformation is akin to ending lying and human nature, a good subject for philosophy, but perhaps with little practical value. We can, however, collapse influence campaigns of adversaries and competitors, campaigns that may use disinformation as but one of many tools or legislation or judicial conclusions can also curb social media business models to perhaps help slow the spread of disinformation that can be dangerous to communities. But most importantly, we can ensure a critical, creative, independent, and healthily skeptical populace. And for closing remarks on this podcast, I'd like us to think, or consider at least, that first, that information influence can be the role and duty of every commander, every warfighter, every strategist, every national security professional, in many of their missions when appropriate. I would suggest that perhaps it should not always be relegated to specific lines of operation and that information influence and persuasion campaigns can be strategic and subtle in nature with global implications.